everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here with you. Today's show is going to be really important and really informative. We have an amazing, amazing lineup of guests. First, I'm going to be talking to Miko Pellet, the author of The General Son. And then we're going to be talking to Mohammed Hissam, who is a Palestinian-American organizer. So before we start, please do what you always do, hopefully, which is like the stream. It's really important for us to get the stream out there because I think we would all agree that these are going to be important perspectives that most places are not streaming. Obviously, if you've paid any attention to the media or social media, there's quite an obvious bias that we're seeing. And these guests are going to debunk that narrative. So please do not just like and subscribe and to subscribe, you hit subscribe and then the bell, but also share this now on social media so that people come and watch it. Also, if you can join the Patreon, patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That way you get extended interviews. Some of this may be Patreon only, anything that's Patreon only. The place you find that, again, is patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So without any further ado, I'm going to bring on our first guest. He's been on the show a bunch, Miko Pellet. He's an Israeli-American activist, speaker, and writer. He's the author of The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation. And you can also find him at Patreon, and you can find him at MikoPellet.com. Welcome, Miko. Thanks, Katie. Good to be with you again. Yes, of course. Thank you for joining. It's obviously not a very happy time right now. We are going to be talking about the situation in Gaza, but I thought that before you talked about that, I think it's important for people to know your story. Could you just kind of give a brief overview of the family that you come from, your political trajectory, and the hardships that your family has dealt with? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the show again. Um, I just want to say I just came from a really wonderful event here in D.C. at Buzz Boys and Poets. Just kind of an open mic where just people, not necessarily the usual people, but some people who are not the usual crowd came in and uh, came out and kind of spoke from the heart about what's happening, how they see it, what their thoughts are. And it was really very, very moving. So it's something that uh, I strongly recommend, just kind of a you know, place to get together and just talk as opposed to receive information or argue or express opinions just to kind of speak from the heart. It was very, it was very helpful. It was very good. Well, like you said, I, I, I'm, you know, I was born and raised in in uh, in a very Zionist family in Jerusalem. My family is still there. Maybe I'll pop back and forth. I mean, I've had family in Kibbutz Beri, which is one of the kibbutzim that was very heavily hit by the Palestinian fighters. Um, what I heard, I was talking to my sister this morning. It's completely wiped out, and my cousin and her husband, um, who are in their seventies now, are were one of the last ones who are somehow their home was not. Uh, hurt, and they were 
only um, evacuated today. So they've been there seven, eight, nine, ten for three days, hiding in their home, quietly trying to figure out how to, you know, play with a lock so nobody can unlock and come in. And as fighting was going on outside, and another kibbutz where I have family, kibbutz Zikib, also right just just on the border with Gaza, just north of Gaza, there's been fighting there, and lots of other places in that area. So you know. My family back there are, everybody's terrified, I have to say. Not only my family, Israelis are terrified. They've never seen anything like this before. And, you know, it, it puts me and them once again in a, in a difficult situation because my stance, even though I come from this very Zionist family with a father who was a general and so on. And your grandfather was a signatory to Israeli independence. Right. My grandfather signed the, general, the uh, Israeli Declaration of Independence. So he was an important Zionist uh, Leader and you know my entire family come you know part of that you know Zionist uh, leadership that's established and then ran the state for for first few decades. Um, but I I I was saying today in this open mic thing you know I I don't stand in solidarity with Palestinians I don't support the Palestinian cause I see myself as part of the struggle as part of the cause I'm not separate from it and expressing solidarity. And uh, when my family's over there going through this, people are afraid to leave the house. They don't know what's going on. The army's collapsed. The police has collapsed. The, the, everything they relied on or they used to rely on has collapsed. In other words, there's nobody protecting people. And that's a very scary place to be. And the children are afraid. And, you know, and here I am, you know, making these very bold statements in support of the Palestinians and the Palestinian resistance. So it put us all in a, in a, in a strange, uh, or somewhat strained um kind of situation. I did speak to my, like I said, I spoke to my sister this morning at length and kind of to learn where they're standing and what's going on. Because the news we get here and even the news they get there is, um, is, is incomplete because nobody has the full picture. Israelis are, do not know what's going on. The Israeli government doesn't say anything. The military has, as far as anybody can see, fallen apart. It's mostly groups of guys who are reservists who just put on the uniform, grab a gun, and go with their buddies to fight somewhere, you know? And so they're in a very difficult position. And uh, like I said, here I am, you know, standing here with either a kofiya or a Palestinian flag, speaking in support of the Palestinian or as part of the Palestinian struggle. Um, and, you know, so this is one part of what my family is going through. And I was thinking today, you know, as you know, I have two young children. They're half of their, they have grandparents and uncles and aunts who are Palestinians, and they have grandparents grandparents and aunts and uncles who are Israeli, and they never met. And it's not because they're in Gaza or the West Bank. They live an hour drive within, you know, on, on, on the main highway, but they never met, and it's likely that they never will, at least not in the near future. So this is kind of a unique situation that I'm, a unique position that I'm in, and eventually they're going to be in. And um, we had another, you know, unique experience, a tragedy when 1997 um, my sister's little girl was killed in a suicide bombing. And so that also put our family in this uh, strange, a very different space because we were a family that came from kind of very liberal Zionist, supporting the two-state solution. My father, after he retired, you know, pushed very hard for negotiations with, with the Palestinians for the two-state solution, for a Palestinian state, for Palestinian rights within that framework. He even met with Yasser Arafat. And so, and then suddenly, you know, his granddaughter was killed by Palestinians. I mean, boom. I mean, it just kind of shows you this, this, 
a very bizarre reality that exists there. And now where you're just kind of thrown into this reality, regardless of, you know, you just happen to have been born to this, to this reality. Um, so the strangeness or the uniqueness, I should say, of, of my situation, my position in this, in this story um, comes to light every so often. There's something that brings it up to the surface and I have to stop for a minute and realize, wow, you know, I haven't spoken to my family since the attack on October the 7th until this morning because it's a little bit strange, you know? So anyway, that's kind of the, that's the background of, of where I, you know, where, where I come from and where I am today. And the sister you spoke to, is this the sister who, whose daughter was killed? No, I spoke to my sister. I have two sisters. Yeah, I spoke to another sister. And on top of all this, your Kassam rockets are falling everywhere as far north as Tel Aviv airport. And my family's in Jerusalem, so that's further south. And in the north, the rockets are coming in from Lebanon now, pretty hard, pretty, you know, obviously pretty, with quite a bit of intensity. And so is people don't know where to go. And there's this sense now, the, the, fen, the, the part of the fence that separates Gaza from the rest of the country has been, you know, torn. It was basically barbed wire and it's still open. So the fighters are getting reinforcements and they quite freely go back and forth, apparently. And nobody knows how many are in there, how many are around. Nobody knows if they've got, if they're driving around freely on the highways, if someone's going to show up in your neighborhood with, you know, if a, you know, a group of, of fighters is going to show up in your neighborhood and did what they didn't do and start shooting like they did in Sderot and Tivot and some of these other cities and some of the kibbutzim in the south. So the fear and the, the, the terror is real. I mean, people are feeling terrorized and are feeling very, very scared. And on top of that, there's rumors of beheadings and rape and because there are all these networks out there that are putting up out all the stuff. And according to what I understand, the only, the only reliable source of information is coming out of Gaza somehow. Uh, because the Israeli government is not providing any information to the citizens and the Israeli news are... You know, they what they see is what they can they can um, is what they can broadcast, and they don't see a lot. I mean, what they happen to see as they're driving down, or what they whatever you know bits of information they get in the studio. So Israelis have never been in a situation where every single agency that was supposed to protect them collapsed. I mean, all the redundancies that are supposed to have existed and prevented this collapsed very quickly. I mean, they were challenged and they were gone. I mean, you see the ease with which the Palestinian fighters came in they, with gliders and and on foot. And then they took an entire military base with tanks and they took a general POW and the, ta- the base is now theirs. The base does not exist. And this is the main base, the Gaza Brigade base, which is supposed to protect those, you know, those settlements that are on the outside, on the outskirts of Gaza. So Israelis have never been in this in this situation where everything collapsed. They're always afraid of this. There was always this fear, you know, God forbid that, you know, we should, you know, we should put our guns down, or God forbid we should we wouldn't be, you know, as diligent as we should be. They will come and they will slaughter us all. You know, this is kind of this the uh well, when the they were tested, and they were tested twice. I mean, they were tested exactly 50 years ago when the Egyptian and Syrian army attacked in 1973. It wasn't as bad as this. It's not like there were soldiers running around the streets and shooting in cities. And uh, the entire system collapsed. And now the entire system collapsed even more so. 
Um, I mean, there was no intelligence. And Israel is supposed to have this great intelligence system and all these units and all this information and all this, you know, cyber stuff and, 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 and God knows what else. Uh, and human, human information, too. I mean, every other person is a collaborator. I mean, you can't talk, you can't sneeze in one part of Palestine without somebody talking about it five minutes later in another part of Palestine. And this entire operation was planned, had to be months to plan something like this. The equipment had to be purchased or built. The soldiers, the fighters had to be trained. I mean, they executed this like a very well-trained, well-disciplined military force. So they had to be trained. They had to practice somewhere. They couldn't have done all of it in tunnels under the ground. And nobody, nobody saw it coming. Nobody had, you know. And so Israelis are going, and then the military, the army wasn't there when they came in. They walked right into a military base. They walked right into these kibbutzim. They walked right into these big cities. So what happened? Why was there this failure? Nobody knows. Nobody has answers. And, and, and the attitude right now in the press is, well, we'll get to that later. Now we just need to make sure everybody's safe and we know what's going on. We'll get to the blaming and to the investigating later. But more and more and more you sense, and I see this in the Israeli press, you know, the, the, the bits, the talk about what the hell happened go from the very bottom. They go up and up and up. They're not in the front. They're not in the top headline yet because they're still saying, let's, let's wait with that. Um, but let's say they do find out that there was, you know, so what? So this one general will be fired, another general will be fired. The, the, the government, there is no opposition. So it's like Israelis can go to the polls tomorrow and vote for somebody else because they're all scrambling to be in, an, in a national unity government, which means both sides. Imagine the Republicans and the Democrats are both in the White House. I mean, it's a parliamentary system, so it's different, but you know what I mean? Are both in the executive branch. And, uh, and, and that's what they want to do now. So, so all the parties are going to be in the government, which means there's, even, there's no opposition, even symbolically there's no opposition. So who do you vote for? And besides, the entire Israeli political system is in musical chairs. The guy that was Minister of Defense yesterday is going to be back again as Minister of something else tomorrow. And, you know, all this musical chair goes on. And the head of this monster which is Netanyahu, doesn't change. There's nobody can challenge him. So Israelis don't even have a choice. Let's say they do find out that this was, I mean, they, they know, everybody knows that this was a massive failure of every system possible. But this can't be blamed on some, you know, on some general or on some officer. This is systemic. This goes all the way to the top. And in a real democracy, the person at the top will have would have had to quit his job, but that's not going to happen here. And what about the claim that Egypt had warned them? Yeah, that claim is out there. I mean, that's what they're saying. They're saying now that Egypt warned them, which is really it's supposed to do, because that's what Egypt's role is in, in this triangular relationship between Egypt, Israel, and the United States in regards to Gaza. Uh, and then they're saying that there are other warning signs coming out of Gaza, that there were some intelligence people that were warning, saying that this was coming, or that they noticed that there was training. I had a gut feeling that something had to happen. I mean, I was feeling the last couple of weeks thinking, this is awfully quiet. I mean, this is really awfully quiet. The Palestinians, because there was this eruption of activity in Nablus and Janine a few months ago. And then just this complete silence. And I felt like, 
this doesn't feel right. Something is, doesn't seem right. And boom, we woke up on the seventh and, and heard that this has been going on. Um, how the intelligence services didn't, how this didn't go up the chain of command, how this wasn't noticed. It's going to be investigated, but it's not going to lead to anything significant, like I said, either way. I just want to add that, you know, something that was so amazing about your story, and I really recommend that everyone read uh, The General Son, was how it was in some ways the killing of your niece that radicalized you. Yes. I mean, so... I mean, you, you you don't know how to respond when something, nobody knows how to respond when something like this happens. But the one thing that it does is it shakes you up to a point where something changes. You know, it's a kind of uh, shock that just changes everything. And so, you know, I really have to thank my sister who stood up and said, first of all, don't talk to me about revenge and retaliation and killing more people. And number two, for pointing the finger at the Israeli government and saying, well, you treat people like this, this is the result. So you're, it's, it's Israel's, Israel is to blame. And I think it's, it's relevant today, too. This is exactly what's happening today, too. I mean, you keep people treated like this, you're going to get, this is, the, this is what you're going to get. And then that started my brain, and it gave me, I think, a direction to go in. And then I uh, began you know, to engage and, and meet Palestinians and, and, and so on. And you know this I we, we we very often you know this the violence in Palestine has been completely normalized. Okay, so three people blew themselves up. There was a suicide bombing. There were five people injured. Blah blah. blah. Wait wait a minute. What three young people? We never stopped for a moment and paused to take it in and let it sink in. Three young men blew themselves up and killed a whole bunch of other young innocent people with them. What are we, what is going on here? This how do, how can we go on beyond that and talk about anything else? We need to stop right there and say, wait a minute. Say that again. Who are these people? Where do they come from? What is the what is the larger story here? You know, we're not talking about you know you know, something that's out of the blue. We're talking about there's context here. There's a political context here that we can't ignore and that we have to de- dig deep into. And that's what I did. I chose to dig into it. And, you know, I came out, you know, radicalized and, and, and I suppose, and, and, and with the opinions and the decisions that I made about my life and my, and my, and my work. What is this story, the context that so much of the media is leaving out? Because you see these people who it's very, I find this very hard to, to deal with right now because people really think that they're just, when they express sympathy towards the Israelis who have been killed, they don't think that they need to mention the Palestinians who have been killed, or they don't think that they need to mention what Netanyahu is responding with, or they don't feel that they need to mention how Israel created the situation in the, in the first place. So can you fill that in? So Netanyahu, on October 7th already, he said, we are at war. Well, excuse me? Israel declared war on the Palestinians 75 years ago. That war has been going on against Palestinians. Palestinians have been the victims of a vicious, savage, I would say, brutality for 75 years. Uh, The fact that the two million people are locked up in the concentration camp 
which some people now say has been turned into an extermination camp in the Gaza Strip, is only a, is only a part of this horrific story, this savagery that Palestinians have been subjected to. Palestinians have never had an army. They still don't have an army. What we saw is a, is a small, you know, guerrilla group. It's not an army um, operating. And so Israel has been murdering civilians, dispossessing people, torturing them, beating them, taking away their land, stealing from them, uh, stealing from their stealing their homes and their land and their resources and their and and their trees and their money and on and on and on. For 75 years, Israel declared this war 75 years ago. Netanyahu thinks the war started now. This has nothing to do with Hamas. These are Palestinian fighters from the Gaza Strip in an act of resistance. Now, uh, I don't think I'm saying anything that anybody would disagree with when I say that it's, it breaks your heart when, every, when a person gets killed. Everybody has a mother and a father. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. Of course it's horrifying when, when somebody gets killed. But what they do is they take it out of context. You cannot take this out of context. What we saw Palestinian fighters doing, and again, we don't know the full picture because there is no, there are, is no reliable news source yet that I've seen anyway uh, that gives the entire picture. How many were taken? How many were killed? How many were injured? In what, under what circumstances? And so on. It does look like the decapitated babies is unfounded, by the way, that claim. Oh, it's unfounded. Yeah, it's yeah. unfounded. And babies in, in chicken coops and cages are unfounded. But, I mean, the thing, and let's say, you know, what do you think happens when a one-ton bomb is dropped on a building? You think babies aren't decapitated? You think people aren't suffocated in the gases that come out and the smoke? The white phosphorus. And the white phosphorus. And the buildings that fall on people, that people get trapped, and parts of their body gets... I mean, it goes on and on and on, the horror. You know what I mean? You want to get to the details of the horror? Fine, let's get into the details of the horror. Let me describe to you what happens when you drop a one-ton bomb on a, on a, on a, in a neighborhood, in a residential neighborhood. How many children get, you know... So that's not the issue. We need to see this in a political context. Now, military, you know, military operations, acts of, you know, actions have to lead to a political outcome. That's the point of what, they, that's, that's their objective. You know, people are always, you know, get stuck on the military side of it, on the, on, on the armed side of it. But the more important issue here is the political accomplishments, the political objective that is reached through the military goal. Now, Palestinians have been waiting for a peaceful resolution for decades. And their hands have been pushed, slapped away. And they've been humiliated over and over again. Every time they reach out, every time they try to, they agree to some kind of a solution, they get slapped in the face and humiliated. What, just a couple of years ago, we saw the March of Return, where, where, where people marched to the wall, to the gates of Gaza. And what, what did they get? They got thousands of young Palestinians whose legs had to be amputated. There were 2,000 young Palestinians whose legs have been amputated because of sniper fire that was directed against unarmed civilians who came to protest and say, you know, we, we want peace, we want freedom, we want to return to our homes and our land peacefully. So when something like this happens now, so they say, okay, fine, all this peaceful, uh, nonviolent stuff is great, but it's not working, number one. And look at the, and look at the results. Look at this innocent, how many innocent civilians were killed. 
And this is only one example. The March of Return is one example. There's so many others. Where medics, medics were targeted. Yes. Members of the press were targeted by snipers who are very good at their jobs. This wasn't an accident. Yeah, no, none of this was an accident. And there were no military. There was no military there. Everybody was a civilian. I mean, there is no, like I said, there's no such thing as a Palestinian military. There never has been. They're all civilians. Some are policemen, maybe. And now you've got this military operation that, you know, I was listening to this one retired Israeli general. He couldn't stop praising the military, the, the you know, what, a, what an incredible military operation the, the Palestinians put together and executed. He was on and on and on and on talking about how, what, and it was. And look what they've accomplished. They have completely disrupted the state of Israel. They have completely disrupted. From a military point of view, this operation was a massive success. Are people suffering? Yes. Are people dead? Yes. Are innocent people hurt and injured and killed? Yes. But it's not the only thing that exists. There's a whole other story to it. There's two million people who are being murdered on a regular basis by the thousands on a regular basis. They don't have access to water or electricity or, or you know, a child with a, people with curable diseases dying because Israel won't give them access to hospitals that are, you know, a 20-minute drive from Gaza. So that's the whole story. So now look what they've done. A handful of well-trained fighters, look what they did. They disrupted the entire country. Tel Aviv airport is chaos, complete chaos. Flights don't want to, you know, uh, the foreign airlines don't want to land because the, the rockets are, are falling too close. Most of the Israeli airline pilots are also fighter pilots, so they've been, they've been called in. The airport is chaos. So militarily, this is, a, this is a huge accomplishment. This is a huge victory. And they're still fighting. All these days later, they're still fighting. They still, this massive Israeli army has not been able to stop them. Now, on top of all that, we know that negotiations are, are forthcoming because these things always end with negotiations. Even though they're saying, right? They're saying they're not going to negotiate. They always say that. But eventually they have to negotiate. So now the big question is, how, do, how, how is this military operation, which is very successful, going to be translated into a real political gain for Palestinians? That's going to be the real test. I want to play, we have a clip of Netanyahu making a statement. Let's show that. It has subtitles. All of the places which Hamas is deployed, hiding in, and operating from that wicked city, we will turn them into rubble. I say to the residents of Gaza, leave now, because we will operate forcefully everywhere. So what is he saying there? Is he saying leave Gaza? <laughs> yeah. Is he telling the people of Gaza to leave Gaza? Okay, so he's saying several things here, and I think they're worth noting. Uh, yes, at the end he says, the people of Gaza, you should leave. Well, where are they going to go? They don't have bomb shelters and they can't leave. Israel is the reason they can't leave. So, you know, it's nonsense. And then he says, all these places from which Hamas is operating will become, will be ruins, turned into ruins. Well, first of all, if you know where they are and you know they're operating, why didn't you do it before the attack? Why are you acting now? Why are you closing the stable after the horses have escaped? What's the point of destroying them now? You know what I'm saying? So he's, he's trying to defend himself I say, yes, we all, what, do you mean? What, what do you mean respond? Your job was to prevent this. Israeli citizens were expecting you to prevent this so this wouldn't happen to them. I'm not talking about justice, no justice, who's right, who's wrong now. I'm just talking from an Israeli citizen perspective. Your job was to defend Israelis. 
You failed. Now you're going to bomb Gaza? You haven't even gotten control of the cities and, and the towns and the kibbutzim that have been taken by these Palestinian fighters, and you're going to bomb every place that they operate from and every hiding place? What the hell are you talking about? You don't even know where they're hiding. Most of their operations are underground anywhere, in tunnels anyway. And they're very well, you know, very well uh, fortified. So that's what you do. I mean, it's, you know, it's complete nonsense. And where are these people going to go? You know, but this is his, this is his, his, his mode of operation and he's very successful at it. People buy it. People buy it and, and, and love it and they can't get enough of it. Someone said to me, Hamas is not letting Palestinians leave into Israel, even though Israel is accepting them. That's complete nonsense. How are they going to leave? How are they going to get there? They're going to walk with their children and their bags, and Israel's going to let them in. And where are they going to go in Israel? To do what? Sit on the street? Hitchhike? What exactly? Take a bus? <laughs> what exactly are they going to do? You know, it's complete nonsense. And, the, and you know, the, the gate, the, the fence is now broken. I mean, it's, it was, you know, it's just barbed wire. It's easy, easily. But it's, you know, it's a lot of, it's miles to walk. Let's also show a video that Netanyahu himself tweeted. His tweet that accompanied this image said, continue with all the strength. So there, he tweets out a building being bombed. And then let's show a video from the defense minister. I have ordered a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no fuel, no water. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. So he's saying that we're going to cut them off totally. We are dealing with human animals and we'll act accordingly. And some people see this and say, yeah, but he's talking about Hamas, not the people of Gaza, except the punishment he's inflicting is collective. <laughs> yeah, this whole idea that somehow Hamas is the problem is, is you know, it's 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 a... It's the it's the it's the terminology thing, you know. They never say Gazans or Palestinians. They say, they say the the Hamas, the Hamas, and it's always uh, masculine singular, the Hamas. This has got to do with Hamas. I mean, you know, these are Palestinian fighters, and if they weren't Hamas, you think they wouldn't be fighting, you know? Um, so it's it's nonsense. It's it's you know, it's Tony Soprano. It's a gangster who has been who's been injured humiliated, and now is out there to get vengeance. That's really what we saw. That is the face of a gangster who was humiliated and just is just full of rage and wants to kill as many people as possible out of, out of vengeance, and that's what he's doing, and he's got the ability to do so. And look at his face. You can see by his face that he's just so angry and humiliated. Uh, that's, that's really what it is, and that's how Israel is behaving. Israel is behaving like a mafia, like a, like a bunch of gangsters. That's exactly what they are. They steal, they kill, they uh, blackmail, and that's how they survive in the world. I thought we could watch Biden's response. To hear the full discussion with Miko, including his reaction to Biden's speech on Israel, please join us at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. That was amazing, and I'm really excited to bring on our next guest, Mohammed Hissam. He's an organizer with the Palestinian Youth Movement and currently serves as Director of Advocacy and Education for the Palestinian American Cultural Center of Houston. So, Mohammed, without any further ado, 
please come to this virtual stage. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to ask you what I asked Miko before. I asked Miko to explain his relationship to this situation, to what's happening in Gaza, his family's relationship to, to Palestine. What's your family's relationship to Palestine? So, yeah, I'm uh, my both my parents are Palestinian and obviously I'm Palestinian. Um, my father's side of the family were uh, from West Jerusalem um, and they were expelled uh, in 1948 as part of the Nakba, as part of the founding of the state of Israel. And they ended up going to Kuwait and living there for multiple decades before they eventually immigrated to the United States. My mother was born and raised in Jerusalem, um, at the eastern part of the city, and uh, she was born in 61 prior to the occupation and eventual annexation of Jerusalem by Israel, uh, and her entire family continues to live there. Uh, so my whole family on my mother's side lives in Jerusalem. My dad has one uncle, but my dad's family is just like uh, many Palestinians. Uh, his family scattered across the world, uh, in the region, uh, Germany, Australia, Canada, the U.S., um, his family basically live in what we call a state of exile. What kind of organizing are you doing right now around what's happening? And I'm sorry, by the way, for what happened to your family. Thank you. Can you share what kind of organizing you're doing around this issue right now? Yeah. So right now, I think um, our goal is to organize protests to break through the um, wall of propaganda that we're seeing across um U.S. and Western media abroad, the PYM, Palestinian Youth Movement, as an organization, we have chapters across 14 cities in North America. We're also present in Britain. Um, And what we've noticed is obviously um, what we consider a project of manufacturing consent for a genocide in Gaza. That's what we're witnessing on the political level with the political class from Biden, his speech today, to the media the media class all throughout the U.S. and the West broadly. And so these protests are meant to signal the grassroots voice on this issue. And we're seeing diverse populations, Black people, Latinos, Arabs, uh, Muslim Jews, all throughout North America mobilizing in the streets because this voice, we're not given a platform to sort of uh, combat this or Whenever we are given a platform, it's always framed in a sense of the first question is, do you condemn, right? Uh, Which is a question that's never asked of representatives of the state of Israel, for example, despite them coming on to, uh, they're never asked, do you condemn the massacre of Palestinian children within Gaza? And so our goal as the PYM is to organize protests and actions throughout. I mean, in off periods, quote unquote, off periods or lulls, we're still organizing protests. We did this. Uh, when Hawara was, uh, when, a, when a pogrom was uh, carried out against Hawara, we did this when Shirin Abu Akleh was assassinated by the IDF. We did this in May of 21. So we're regularly organizing actions, but we also do educational events. And, you know, in the U.S., and um, Miko would, would he be able to speak to this as well, and I'm sure he's mentioned this, there is a, the Palestinian and Arab communities broadly have a sense of fear, you know, and it, and you, you'll see this moment actually shows you why, right? First of all, there's an, impl- there's an implication that Arabs and Muslims are rapists, are cutting off ba- babies' heads. And the implication is, is that our communities, if they're not doing that, 
in Palestine, they're supportive of that. Okay. And so imagine a context in which you're you're being accused of being supportive of essentially barbaric acts, right? Acts that haven't taken place or occurred. Their propaganda, uh, their lies, and fabricated by, you know, Israeli media personalities. But in, in any case, our goal as the PYM is to create a sense of uh, courageousness amongst our communities, right? That regardless of this moment, we have to weather the storm. And at the end of it, the, the we're only going to be able to shift the narrative if we confront it. If like we actually face off because there's this tendency, especially amongst immigrant communities where fear, fear of deportation, they don't really understand the criminal justice system or their legal rights within this country to say, let's go into our shell. Let's keep our heads down because this isn't the moment for it. Okay. Especially when you have, um, basically they're veiled threats when they say we're going to bring in the FBI and law enforcement to investigate to ensure there aren't attacks. Well, the people whose doors are being knocked on are people like me, people like our community. So, like, there's a veiled threat. There's a manufacturing of consent around repression of the Arab, Muslim, Palestinian communities. There's a manufacturing consent of the siege mentality and fear mongering within created and projected onto the Jewish community that Jewish people are not safe here, that they're under threat from their Arab and Muslim neighbors. And there's a manufacturing of consent for a genocide in Gaza. This is a, 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 a three-pronged strategy that takes place through platforms in the DC and through CNN, MSNBC, Fox. So for us, PYM, that's our goal right now is to counter that. We're on a defensive, but we're also on an offensive. It's not, you know, we, the, the tide is turned. Obviously, it's not, the grassroots does not match the grass tops, nor does it match the actual political elites, but we're not, just like our people are brave in Palestine, we have to be brave here, regardless of repression and regardless of, of the threats that we face from all of these different uh, sources. And I just wanted to return to um, uh, the question of kind of what your family experiences, um, because I know that they, you, you were telling me before that some of your family uh, members in Palestine don't feel safe. Right. Can you explain why? Because I just want people to get the sense of the reality over there. Right. So in Jerusalem, so the, for the Palestinians that live in Jerusalem, the vast majority of them are just residents. Okay. They do not have Israeli citizenship. So what that means is you live in the city, you pay taxes, but you're not allowed to vote and you're not permanently there. Okay. And so what that can, that residency can be revoked at any point in time. And in fact, the state of Israel has a law that applies only to Palestinians, right? And that law is if Palestinians who are from Jerusalem who have residency cards, right, residency ID cards, are spend more than six months outside of Jerusalem, whether that's spending time in the West Bank or spending time in the U.S., that residency card is revoked, okay? So that means the city of their birth, where their family lives, the vast majority of their life they may have lived there, they're not allowed to live there anymore. So my mom is that. My mom's residency card was revoked because they found out she had an American passport. They said, because the idea is we have to empty these lands of Palestinian Arabs, right? And so that's their opportunity. So they codified it. Now, this doesn't apply to Jewish people in Jerusalem, you know? And it actually, in fact, doesn't apply to Jewish people outside of Palestine. It means that, you know, someone like yourself, for example, can go and immigrate 
to Jerusalem today, right? You can immigrate to Jerusalem today and get citizenship and live where my mom was born in my mom camp, even though she was born and raised there, even though she lived there before Israel ever occupied it, right? And this is why we call it a dual system of apartheid. So there's that backdrop, first of all. The second thing is Jerusalem is under military occupation administered by the Israeli police, okay? And that means are, the lives of Palestinians are controlled. Palestinians either live in Palestinian neighborhoods, right, where it's predominantly Palestinian and they're subject to Israeli control, right? And that means they can be cordoned off, they can be closed off. There's a, 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 a major refugee camp. Uh, it's called Shafat in Jerusalem that's constantly raided and under siege. Or they live in mixed neighborhoods where there is heavy police presence. And you can even see, I mean, it's a settler dynamic where sort of the most rabid wings of Israeli society are effectively trying to encroach on Palestinian neighborhoods. And the reason is, is make their lives miserable. And so now Palestinians in Jerusalem are not going out of their homes. And the reason is, is because they're afraid, afraid of the settlers that are present within Jerusalem, the, the ones that spit on you, the ones that attack you under the supervision of the Israeli police. So that's the context for Palestinians in Jerusalem. They're obviously uh, very fearful. Um, but at the end of the day, I think um, it's one of those things where if the moment is, is right for it, they will go out into the streets. But right now it's a state of fear. It is. And what can people who want to support um, the, the cause, what can we do? Right. So I think the most important thing is, is to support the grassroots organizations within your city, right? The progressive forces within the context that do take firm stances on Palestine to support them. Because here's the thing. There's this tendency, especially amongst the progressive wing of American movement, to jump ship the moment it gets too hot. Right. And we've seen that already. Congressmen have jumped ship. Right. People who are often viewed as pro-Palestine are jumping ship. People condemned like AOC condemned the all out for Palestine. Which was, in fact, organized by the PYM. It wasn't organized by the DSA. Oh, wow. This is important. The DSA, because it's an opportunity for them to take a shot at the DSA, they did it. Right. Because people are scoring points. People like Richie Torres, people like the governor of the state of New York. All of these people, Mayor Adams, all of these people are looking for an opportunity to score points and to attack the progressive wing of our, our society, not because they stand on Palestine, but truthfully because of their opportunity to attack them for being progressive. And this is, I think, like the progressive movement needs to understand. Palestinian issue is a canary in a coal mine, okay? It, the moment it goes down, that means they're circling you, right? They're circling you for whether it's because you support Medicare for all, whether it's because you support public education, whatever issues that are actually progressive, Palestine is their vehicle to attack you, okay? And you know someone is principled and not willing to sell out people if they stand firm on Palestine. Because if you can catch heat on Palestine and weather it, you can catch heat on fossil fuels, you can catch heat on supporting unions and their strike, you can catch heat in supporting Medicare for all, if you're willing to weather it, then you're willing to weather it in all issues. And so, you know, I think supporting grassroots movements and progressive movements that are firm on Palestine, groups like the PYM, local Palestine groups, student movements on campus, Students for Justice in Palestine that are all over campuses across the U.S., over 200 chapters. 
these groups are under constant attack. There's a reason, for example, like, you know, I think Katie, you asked me, like, do you have a Twitter uh, handle? And I, I, I do have a Twitter, but I no longer have a Twitter. And the reason is because I've, I've been harassed nonstop by groups like Canary Mission. Canary Mission, which, you know, you know, I'll be forward, you know, ASM is my middle name. And the reason is because the amount of pressure we face. So it's not your last name. It's not my last name because people might call my workplace, right? And so here's the thing. On my Canary Mission. Can you explain what Canary Mission is for people who don't know? So Canary Mission is a, I think it's an Adelson funded initiative, truthfully. I, I can't tell you because they're really, they guard their funding. Sheldon Adelson, right? R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. indeed. Well, it's an Adelson-funded project that essentially is a blacklist of Palestinian Arab and just pro-Palestine activists all over campuses, okay? Professors, media personalities, students, right? And the idea is to blacklist them and to basically track their lives. And, I, and for example, my profile is multiple pages long. My profile has my wedding date on well, who I got married to. Oh, great. So she can get harassed too? Yeah, and she's on Canary Mission too. So they've linked our profiles. My wife and me are now on Canary Mission. And then they've identified that we've married. It tells you where my workplace is. It tells you it follows every every development in my life. You know, sometimes if I don't remember what I've done in terms of my activism career, I just go to the Canary Mission and it's right there present for me because they've chronicled it all. Okay? And they accuse you of being anti-Semitic, of supporting terrorism, of being anti-American. All of the sort of accusations you can imagine. Um, so that's Canary Mission. And I, I mean, it's not like at this point in time, I've already like, there, it's not like I'm going to erase what they have, but I'm just also tired of being harassed. You know, I'm not going to stop my work. I prioritize different avenues of work. You know, I'm not on social media as much. I'm more involved with my community organizing on a grassroots level. But I, I used to be very present within social media, but now it's, for me, it's, 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 it's balancing. Do I want to spend my energy responding to vitriol and harassment, or do I want to spend my energy organizing within my community? And I've, I've chosen the latter. What was the protest, the all out for Palestine? What were those protests about? Because you have a lot of people, of course, saying that they were a celebration of violence. I just, I mean, I almost feel bad even asking you about that because it's so ridiculous, but given you know, I want to give you the chance, given how pervasive those headlines are and how it clearly worked. Either people like AOC either believed it naively or saw through it, but for political reasons, pretended not to. Right. So the All Out for Palestine protest is about demonstrating that there is still support for Palestinians, right? As they weather one of the cruelest bombardment campaigns, we're talking about almost 700 Palestinians killed over the duration of two days, you know? And so for us, it was to, 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 to signal to the rest of the world and to our communities here that the grassroots, the diverse communities of these different cities, the progressive movements support Palestine. And support Palestine because here's the thing. As far as the attacks go, there's a bunch of different things that have happened during these last attacks in Israel. But the most fundamental and most important thing for us as Palestinians is that Palestinians broke out of Gaza. Okay? That alone is something that's monumental for us. Why? Because it's a prison break. You know what I mean? When you have people who are completely trapped, they're besieged, they're blockaded, land, air, and sea, 
food, medicine, construction material, everything that goes in and out is controlled, okay? When those people, some of them have never lived outside or visited outside of Gaza. They've not seen the rest of Palestine. They've not seen the coast of what is called modern-day Israel, where they're from. Because 70% of the Gazan population, the people who are living in the Gaza Strip, are not from Gaza. They're from the north of Palestine. They're from Haifa and Akka and uh, Tabariya and all of these different cities that now either have very tiny Arab populations or no Arab populations at all. So these people fled south, okay? And they ended up there. And these people have never seen it for generations, the rest of Palestine. And so it was a prison break. So for those, for, for us as Palestinians, this is important. Now, getting into the weeds of what transpired afterwards in the propaganda that's been spread, you have to, it, it's almost impossible to parse through. But at the end of the day, we support our right, the right of our people to break out of prison. Okay. The right of our people to break out of a concentration camp, to revolt against military rule. That, that's fundamental. And what people don't understand is that in these instances, like, and I think Miko was talking about it, colonial situations create violence, period. The situation itself is violent, right? In order to put a fence around the people, in order to keep them in that fence, in order to deny them their uh, food, medicine, you have to inflict a severe degree of violence. And to prevent them from revolting, you have to inflict a severe degree of violence. You have to throw them in cages. You have to torture them. You have to drop bombs on them regularly. And so the situation for Palestinians, and this is what like is crazy. And, and you hear this, this, you know, like obviously the t- cameras turned on when it, when that violence touched Israeli lives. Right. But this violence is ever present for Palestinians, ever present. Okay. If it's not the actual violence, it's the threat of violence. Okay. And so for, for the, our protest is also, a part of that is recognizing that our people revolting is something that is honorable. Okay. That's not to say we're going to get into like, it's not about a celebration of a specific act or the consequences. It's the, 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 the cry for freedom that is reflected in the idea of breaking a fence with a bulldozer that is used to destroy your home. Right. That's a, the image that we see. Okay. And so, um, for Pal- these are why we organize these protests. Makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else that you think is important for people to know about, to hear about? Anything you want to say in response to the media's portrayal of this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of I, I gestured at this. What is important right now, especially for your audience and, and for people like you, is we have to counter this narrative because what is being what is being generated right now is, uh, to use Noam Chomsky, is a, a manufacturing of consent for genocide. We had major uh, Mike, uh, I think his name is Mike Lyons. He was on CNN. He, w- he was asked by Anderson Cooper, who's like choking up when talking about what's happened to Israelis. Uh, he was asked, you know, what is it going to take a ground invasion? What would that look like? He's like, you know, the collateral damage would be thousands, tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. And there was no pushback, no questioning. He said, this is the amount of collateral damage we have not seen since World War II, which the world came together after and said, 
this sort of violence can never be repeated. And they established a list of laws and saying, these are laws we must abide by in contexts of war to ensure that people don't die at this level again. Okay. It's being protected, predicted and encouraged by someone on CNN, this so-called liberal human rights oriented platform, right? Which is, you know, I, I say that tongue in cheek, but like, this is the platform that's at like, imagine, imagine a Palestinian or whoever, someone who's supporting the Palestinians say, oh, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people in Israel will die. And that's collateral damage. And, you know, they got to do what they got to do. Like, you know how that feels to hear that? It's terrifying. It really is terrifying to, to hear, and especially the frenzy across the media, right? The rape stories, 40 babies being beheaded. You know what I mean? What is that meant to gin up? That there is no bounds for the response that must be inflicted on the babies in Gaza, right? So if you decapitate their heads, it's proportion. That's what's being generated. And to have... And, and, and all of these politicians, all of these media figures, all of these corporations issuing these statements, right? That's what's happening. Is the same form of consent that was manufactured around Ukraine. I remember when the Ukraine stuff happened, when the Russia war broke out, I was like, man, I've, I don't remember in my life ever seeing a propaganda campaign being waged in the way. You'd be driving down the streets of Texas Highway and you're seeing Ukraine flags. And corporations would literally say, we'll match our employees' donations to go to military supplies in Ukraine, okay? I remember saying to myself, wow, I don't remember the last time a campaign of manufacturing consent occurred around the war since the war in Iraq. And I even thought at that moment that maybe this was crazier. Maybe, like, maybe it was more frenzied than the war in Iraq. But obviously I was much younger, you know, the post-9-11 era. But anyways, it feels very reminiscent what's happening now, right? To say, and you could see, like, the vilification of Russians is similar to, you know, that, you know, you, 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 you can totally, like, Russians as people, Russian flag, all of that. But they're also now, there's no off limits when it comes to those. Like, you can attack these people as those people. It's not about the government. It's about the people, right? Right. But what's different here is unlike Russia, who is a military and is a superpower, the Palestinians are defenseless, caged people, okay? So you're about to massacre what they, they're in the process of massacring Palestinians. But I will tell you this, you know, and this is why Palestinians, when you want to say, like, do, like, why do Palestinians turn to armed resistance? And I want to talk about resistance, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. So for Palestinians, this is an existential situation, okay? Like, it's not as though we need, you know, because, you know, there's this often this, uh, what happens among Zionists, Zionists is like, let us define Zionism. What is Zionism? They say, oh, Zionism is the self-determination of Jewish people and their historical land, right? But that's not Zionism. That's a definition of Zionism that's in the abstract, that is not grounded in this, the historical record and the present reality. We know what Zionism is. Palestinians do. Zionism for Palestinians is mass expulsion. It's massacres. It's siege. It's occupation. It's war. It's deprivation of rights. Deprivation of land, deprivation of resources, and deprivation of our uh, uh, a fulfilling life. That's what Zionism is for us. We know what Zionism is. 
We know what it's entailed for our people, for our ancestors. We know what it means to us. And we know that its confrontation with us as a people is, is, is existential. There's a land here and a people present. There's another people who want that land without the people. It's pretty simple. And what's crazy is the West Bank, for example, you know, for like religious Zionists, right-wing Zionists, actually Judea Samaria, what they call Judea Samaria, which is the West Bank, is more important to them in terms of theology and biblical history than North, like what you would say the coast, the Tel Avivs, the, where they see the liberal bastions are. They want the West Bank. That's why there's this push on the West Bank for them, right? They're openly declared what they want. Smotrich said it. You have three options. You submit, you die, or you leave, or you're expelled. Those are your three options, Palestinians, okay? So when someone tells you that, are you going to say, let me hold up a sign? Are you going to say, let me appeal to the international community, which is blocked by the U.S., International Court of Justice? Let me establish an NGO and advocate and do a social media campaign? You'd be, there's obviously Palestinians who commit themselves to a nonviolent orientation. And I, I support a diversity of tactics when it comes to Palestinian organizing. I mean, I'm not, it's not like I'm engaging in military. I, I, my, my conduct is nonviolent. I engage in protests and stuff like that. But you would be crazy to tell Palestinians in the face of the most fascistic right-wing government, don't do anything bad. So Palestinians... The, the, what's stopping, what stands in between total annihilation for Palestinians by this government, this fascist government, what stands in between them and that is armed struggle for them as a people. Self-defense, right? And it's wild because I live in the state of Texas where there's more guns than people almost, okay? And people walk around with guns everywhere here, right? There's such a normalization of that in this, in this state. And yet, like when Palestinians, the notion that they may defend themselves, that they might fight back, that's already assumed off limits. And here's the thing, like occupation under international law established through actually the post-World War II era stipulates that occupied people have a right to resist through armed struggle against their occupying power. This is so important. I think that you constantly hear people saying, doesn't Israel have the right to defend itself? And the truth is that Palestinians are the ones with the right to defend themselves. Absolutely. Under international law. Right. Absolutely. Palestinians under international law have the right to defend themselves. But even if there was no international law, you're going to sure. defend yourself if you're facing. But you're right. If you're facing an existential context, right, where someone's telling you, I'm going to drive you out of your country. You're going to defend yourself and you have a right to defend yourself. And, and I want to talk also to put into context, and this is this is me putting on my an analyst hat, okay? Like, let me just analyze the situation. Not as an advocate or a promoter or anything like that. I'm just, let's look at the context. It's an asymmetrical context. You have a people who literally manufactures rockets in a ghetto, okay, with makeshift materials, including reusing the materials of bombs that were dropped on them by the Israelis, okay? whose rockets are indiscriminate, nobody denies that. And in fact, one of the spokesperson for the resistance factions in Gaza once said, listen, y'all don't want us to fire rockets indiscriminately, we're with you. 
We want to be discriminated where we fire our rockets. We want to target military sites. We want to target tanks and soldiers and stuff like that. Give us those weapons. And we'll be happy to do it, right? But right now, I'm manufacturing a weapon in a garage in a ghetto, right, with makeshift equipment and materials. That's what I'm doing. That's what's at my disposal. This rocket that 90% of which is intercepted, at the very least, it's a deterrence, right? Because it's an inconvenience for the people of Israel, right? It's an inconvenience. It's largely what it is. Obviously, people die from rockets. I'm not going to deny that. But at the very least, for Palestinians, this is what stands in our way. Kidnapping soldiers, which, you know, in my estimation, what happened most recently in the last few days, I don't believe that, you know, Hamas anticipated that it was going to be open the way it was. I think they anticipated meeting confrontation with Israeli military. I thought I think their goals were probably to capture a few soldiers to take them back, to exchange them for the thousands of Palestinian prisoners who exist in Israeli prisons, right? To engage in a prison swap. I think that was their goal. And so this goes back to the, for Palestinians, the only avenue for us to have our prisoners of war, these are prisoners of war, released is to capture an Israeli prisoner, right? Uh, Israeli soldier. Like what happened with Shalit. Yeah. Shalit. Yeah. Yeah. Shalit. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, you have to understand, 1,200 of the Palestinians in, of the 5,000 in prison haven't been charged with a crime. They don't have, they don't even know what they're accused of. They're just told you have to admit to what you did, and there's nothing to admit to. So, for Palestinians, this is the asymmetric war. So, for me, like, what I tell people who support Palestine, there's some people who are like, I acknowledge that Palestinians are victims. I acknowledge they're living in an open prison. I acknowledge that they're under occupation. But that's the only way I could actually see them. If they do anything beyond that, it's off limits for me, right? And I tell you, okay, so you tell me as a Palestinian, what should we do? If you believe in the cause of Palestine, if you believe that Palestinians have a right to resist their occupation, you draw out the strategy for us. Write out the plan, please. Let us know what is the path that you think if we follow as a people, We'll achieve our goals. And, and, and if the answer is, I don't have, then what are you doing? You know, you have these writers, so-called left-wing writers say, oh, what if they just did this peaceful march, right? What if they had a gone before them, right? As though that hasn't been tried. As though 2018, legs weren't being, Palestinians were systematically disabled, you know, disfigured systematically, as though that hasn't already been tried. So that what's reinforced to us, there's a wing of the progressive movement that can stomach Palestinians as victims, but nothing more than that, right? They can't stomach them as humans, both imperfect, who make mistakes, who engage in conduct that's excessive at times, right? Who are essentially a colonized population that are engaged in an anti-colonial struggle. They can't stomach that. Even though if you study any anti-colonial history, any anti-slave revolt, any, any actual rebellion against a violent system, it's only ever occurred through violence, right? And, and the ones that don't actually achieve their end goal, like if we were to take apartheid South Africa, this is what I want to say about apartheid South Africa, because they always tried to hold this up. Look, the ANC engaged in nonviolence, this, this, and that. We'll go to South Africa today. 
South Africa is one of the most unequal societies. It's probably more similarly unequal as to what it was under apartheid. Bantus, the, the Bantu stand still exists. They're just shanty towns. They're essentially refugee camps of black people. The white South Africans still control the majority of the land. They'll control the majority of the corporations. And that is what a compromise led to, that the South African population is still largely a victim of a repurposed system. One that instead of divides things black and white, now has allowed the entry of some black people into an elite class, but still maintain the dominant order. That the haves, mainly whites, and the have-nots, right? So like these systems, and I think Zionism, because sometimes Zionism is framed, you know, purely as like a land issue. Zionism is about the allocation of rights, resources, land, privileges to a certain group of people at the expense of the other, right? And that is true. That's why I think we need to understand, like when we say systems of oppression, it's the same. Anywhere you go, it's about the allocation of rights, resources, land. Who gets to have, who doesn't? Someone asked, Katie, please ask your guest to describe what happened during the 2018 peaceful protest, which you did a little bit, but anything else that you want to add? No, it was called the Great March of Return. Okay. Palestinians basically marched to the border with Gaza, the same border they broke through just the past few days, right? And they were sniped at. They were and here's the, the crucial thing, because like these people were not threats. They had no ability to actually breach the border, the border fence, right? And they were systematically gunned down. Journalists. Medics, teachers, children, all kinds of different people were systematically gunned down. And you go to Gaza right now, you see how many people walking around with missing limbs. You know, that's from the Great March of Return. That was the peaceful moment where they had kites and they had burning tires. And that was their form of resistance. And you know what the U.S. government did? Said nothing. You know what? Did Joseph Biden have a have a press conference when he talked about indiscriminate evil? Did he talk about that? No. Did corporations, did the NBA and the NFL and all of these companies put out statements? Did they invite their uh, Palestinian uh, employees to express themselves? No. Because here's the thing, in, in the U.S., Palestinian life is not valued. It, it's not, we are so dehumanized. And, and I, I mean, this, I, I thought after May of 21, because I felt like there was a sea change. I was like, maybe people see us as humans now. I, I, I was optimistic, PYM, everyone, like the Palestinian rights movement in the U.S. It was like, wow, we're like seeing a sea change. Because of what? Because people were standing up for Palestine in ways that we had never seen before during May of 21, Okay. And it was because of Sheikh Jarrah and the neighborhoods. And, you know, the U.S. was still like, instead of saying we support Israel, they were saying, um, you know, we, we want to de-escalate the situation. We, we urge calm, whatever, whatever. So we're like, oh, shit, things have gotten a little better for us here. This latest round reminded me that no, no, no. Fundamentally, we will be seen as unhuman, non-humans or human animals, as Yoav Galan said. That's how we're seen. Speaking of which, I want to share something, and I want your reaction to it, that to me captures perfectly the kind of liberal pep 
you know, progressive except on Palestine, this PEP phenomenon where people who consider themselves, I'm sure, liberal and tolerant and care about human life, that goes only so far. And the border for that is Palestinian. Yeah. This is, you can't make this up. Jamie Lee Curtis tweeted out a photo. I don't know if you saw this. So Jamie Lee Curtis tweets out this photo. It has three, well, a bunch of kids in it, and there's a child holding another child in his arms. He's looking up, and Jamie Lee Curtis posts this and writes, terror from the skies, and then posts an Israeli flag. Now, she thinks that these were Israeli children looking up at, like, rockets or something, right? She is informed that it's actually the following— it is actually a photograph of Palestinian families who seek refuge with their children from the northern Gaza Strip to UNRWA schools. That's United Nation Refugee Works Association. Yes. Okay. UNRWA schools inside Gaza City. Children are afraid of the sound of bombing who hear it during their presence due to the events on the Strip's borders. So what does Jamie Lee Curtis do after she tweets this out thinking they're Israeli children? She deletes it. Right. Because children have humanity if they're Israeli. Right. And they're afraid of rockets. But if they're Palestinians looking up in fear, I mean, she didn't even do a both sidesing of it. She couldn't even say something kind of that like took it out of like a false equivalence. She couldn't even do that. She had to just literally delete it. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. No, I mean, and you can even see in the terms that the way people talk about it, right? Like it's, it's even just in the framing, the amount of sympathy generated. It's not, it's, it's not in any way comparable. First of all, it's disproportionate to the actual violence inflicted on people. Palestinians do not generate that kind of sympathy. Like in under most circumstances, they do not. Okay. And so what does that tell you? What does that tell me? You know, you're worthless. That I'm worthless. Yeah, it does. It really does communicate that to me and to my family and to my friends, right? And it's a product of Islamophobia for sure, anti Arab racism, but there's a specific form of anti Palestinianism that exists, right? That's distinct, even, right? Because, you know, Biden was like, you know, we don't welcome hate, whether it's for Jews or Muslims. But he like they never even utter the word Palestinian. Like they won't even be brought to say the word. You know? I wanted to actually show a video. It's upsetting, but I kind of think it's important to show it. And people can not look if they want. But it's of a father holding his baby. And the reason I want to show it is because, you know, people have been like very emotional on air. And I'm I'm not belittling the violence that has happened. Or I, I guess I should say I'm not belittling violence. Right. But we don't see people crying when they're Palestinians. Right. We don't see mainstream media people crying. Or John Kirby, we don't see him tear up when there are Palestinians killed. So I wanted to show this. It's just a video that, you know, we don't see Anderson Cooper interviewing this father. So right. if people don't want to watch it, it it's sad. it's tragic. I mean, it's infuriating and, and it's tragic, but it's I think it's important. Precisely because this this violence is being totally invisibilized. This is a man in Gaza holding his baby who was who looks like she's sleeping, but she's actually dead. 
I don't I don't know what he's saying. He's saying she's one of the birds in heaven. He's not one of the birds in heaven. He's like, we are all for the sake of resistance. Let the whole world see. Small children. They've killed small children. He's like, let, show, let me show the world. He told him, show the world, show the world. He's like, we are all for the resistance. So despite that, they still feel the resistance. And this is what's important. Like, Palestinians in Gaza are, are sacrificing themselves, have sacrificed, and still are, are, are still understand that the role of resistance in their struggle and our struggle is for them still worth the sacrifice because it's the only thing that can actually ensure their future, right? Even when they are losing their children. Yeah, and I just, as I showed them, like I can just imagine the people, they're going to be like, look how, you know, they'll pathologize Palestinians. So it's going to be, oh, look how they care more about war than their kids or something. Right. Whereas if it were just an Israeli, they wouldn't say that. They would say, look how horrible it is or look how brave they are. Just all these tropes. And it's so upsetting that you don't, see that. Dana Bash did this thing. Well, we talked about it the other day on Monday morning on Useful Idiots and Dana Bash, you know, she was a very emotional. She showed bodies kind of blurred out, but I guess they were the bodies of the people who attended the rave. She mentioned a prayer and I was just like blown away because imagine, well, a Palestinian, forget it, but like just a Muslim American anchor quoting something from Islam. Right. It would never happen. Like, they would be fine. I mean, there would be protests, boycotts. They'd be accused of, you know, being theocrats or something. And it just, it's so disturbing because it's great for people to have empathy. But when the empathy is so selective and one-sided, you're just actually allowing the ethnic cleansing of people. It's not okay. It's not neutral. You're seeing one side of the occupation as human and worthy victims, as Chomsky spoke about. And then, as you said before, everything is justified. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the point of it is, is to numb you to accept this reality. That's all it means. It's like, in order for you to accept it, you have to see these people as less than humans. It's in the same way that, for example, you could, for a person who's like, you know, that eats meat, you know, like that doesn't, that isn't vegan, for example, or isn't vegetarian. So you see someone like a, a factory that slaughters animals. If he doesn't feel like any sort of way towards that, then he can see that and watch that without any issue, right? It's the same concept here. If Palestinians are dehumanized to the point where they're pathologized, where they're rapists, where they behead babies, where they like are like vile and crazed, and evil, the embodiment of evil, right? Like this sort of, uh, like, description that takes place. You know, I, I saw who used to be on The Rising, actually, Batya. You know, she was on, I want to say Fox, right? The way Batya talks, it's unbelievable. And you know, at the end of it, what is the goal of it is for people to not sympathize with the Palestinians, to see them as worthy of genocide, right? That if they're genocide, if you kill two point three million Palestinians, or you kill a hundred thousand, if need be, then it, it makes sense. 
you know, to the extent that you save 600 or 700 or 1,000 Israelis. Because what is unacceptable is that Israelis have died. Not that Palestinians have been subjected to occupation and death. That's acceptable and the norm, and we just, it's the status quo. It is calm. It is calm. It is the reestablishment of calm. Okay? But, you know, at the end of it, Katie, like, I think the Palestinian people, we've been at it for 75 years. We've been at it for 100 years because we faced off with the British, okay? And we have a very resilient people. We, um, despite, we've created a culture of resilience, a culture of resistance, a culture of martyrdom, where we accept the fate that has been presented to us. Because for, at the end of it is, you want us gone but we're not going to go away. And this is what I, this is when we say apartheid, you know, like just to really quickly talk about this and I'm sure you, you need to see, go to your other guests, but the framework of apartheid, for example, okay. Apartheid exists because the project of ethnic cleansing has been resisted. Okay. You were unable to ethnically cleanse all of these people. And so you have to establish a system of racial governance over the ones who've remained. Because hundreds of thousands, not millions of Palestinians live in Lebanon, right? In refugee camps. I was just there. I was just in Lebanon in August. The refugee camps are the worst slums you can imagine. They're ghettos. They're not support. They're the state, the Lebanese state, which discriminates against Palestinians, does not provide any support for them. It's actually under Underwa, the same that is providing services in Gaza, right? These people have their Bored from 27 jobs. They're not allowed to work in 27 jobs. Engineering, lawyers, doctors in Lebanon. These are Palestinians who graduate from universities and then are unemployed. They're living in camps, right? These are the Palestinians that are from the north. The north of Palestine. Then you have the Palestinians in Jordan. The Palestinians in Syria who are now twice refugees. They were expelled from Palestine and now they're refugees from Syria. So, like, this is the state of Palestinian. Like, these Palestinians are outside of apartheid. The ones that remained are under it. But the end goal, Ben Gavir and Smotrich, and, and I want to, I want, I encourage your audience to look up a man by the name of Vladimir Jabotinsky. Okay. He's the ideological forefather of the Rulukud, of Netanyahu's part. Okay. He's the ideological forefather. And if you don't mind, um, Katie, I want to just read a quick quote. Of course. Uh, from Jabotinsky. Who's one of the founders of Israel. Right. And he, he represented, because at the time that Israel was founded, he was the, represented the right wing, right? And the, 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 the Labor Party, which fizzled out after, ironically enough, after October 73, the war in October 73, when they were surprised in the same way they were surprised recently, um, they no longer became relevant. They've never been relevant since. Wow. Well, the Likud in the right wing, this is what Jabotinsky was saying in 1922 in his seminal piece, The Iron Wall, Okay, which describes their strategy vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. He says, our peacemongers, he's referring to the labor Zionists who want to come to an agreement, uh, a, a, a separation, two-state solution back then in the 20s. Our peacemongers are trying to persuade us that the Arabs are either fools whom we can deceive by masking our real aims 
or that they are corrupt and can be bribed to abandon to us their claim to priority in Palestine and return for cultural and economic advantages. I repudiate this conception of the Palestinian Arabs. Culturally, they are 500 years behind us. They have neither our endurance nor our determination, but they are just as good psychologists as we are. We may tell them whatever we like about the innocence of our aims, watering them down and sweetening them with honeyed words to make them palatable, but they know what we want as well as we know what they don't want. They feel at least the same instinctive jealous love of Palestine as the old Aztecs felt for the ancient Mexico and as the Sioux for their rolling prairies. This is how Jabotinsky, who described the project as a colonial project, talks about the Palestinians. And his his telling is the labor, he's telling the labor Zionists, look, y'all can't, you telling uh, this partition plan, you talking about this way, they don't, they know what we want. In fact, you know the Israeli flag, it has two blue stripes. Do you know what those blue stripes symbolize? The Nile and the Euphrates, right? The idea is that is greater Israel. So historically, up until recently, the the, the, the Arabs, you know, historically, the Palestinian cause was an Arab cause. Like it wasn't just Palestinian. Because they viewed Israel as a project of greater Israel. That the historic Israel, the kingdom of Israel, actually spanned from the Nile, now river, to the Euphrates. So that includes all of Lebanon, those parts of Iraq, Jordan, right? And the, the Ben Gavirs of the world, the Smotris of the world, still believe this. They still believe this is their conception of Zionism. And so, for example, resistance, why Palestinians subscribe to resistance, is because they believe resistance is actually what's prevented the Greater Israel Project. It's the expulsion of Zionist uh, forces from Lebanon at the hands of resistance that has prevented this Greater Israel Project, and that's kept these right-wing fanatics at bay. Now, there's a more pragmatist, liberal-minded, cosmopolitan, in touch with Western liberal values, wing that has lost out a long time ago, that is no longer relevant and doesn't even register enough seats to be relevant in that necessarily for parliament, right? Those are gone, the pragmatists. Now all we have is the right-wing ideologues, the right-wing opportunists, and the right-wing fanatics, right? The ideologues who think about things not just in religious terms, right? The opportunists like Netanyahu, who's a criminal, and doesn't want to end up in prison, and the messianic ones, the ones who are on the hilltops in the West Bank, who see Arabs as slaves. Those are the three wings now of the Israeli government. And they've entered into an unholy alliance. And Netanyahu, because of the opportunist he is, needs to ride them because he knows no one else will give him what he wants. And Netanyahu doesn't have an off-ramp. He doesn't have an off-ramp around the Israeli reforms, the Supreme Court. He doesn't have an off-ramp from this war. Because he's already lost. The failure has lost. So that's what scares me. Is when you don't have an off-ramp, the only path forward is genocide for you. Because that's the only way, theoretically, you can redeem yourself in the face of Israeli society in front of the Israeli public. Is you have to butcher Palestinians. You have to expel the Palestinians of the Gaza Strip. Because that's what... And the small churches and the Ben Gavirs of the world are sitting back applauding. They're so excited for their opportunity to carry out another nekbit. Do you think that they would just like level Gaza, even if that meant killing Israelis? Well, so here's, here's what I think. 
Okay, and I'm, I'm not I'm not one to predict because we don't know where this is going to go. First of all, and I think Miko was talking, I caught the tail end of it. Is Israelis, in terms of ground invasion, it hasn't gone well for them recently, historically. And it's actually not their experience with Palestinians that have given them that. It's their experience with the Lebanese resistance, okay? When they barely could advance three kilometers into Lebanon in 2006, they had this, I encourage uh, everyone to read this, and I encourage you, Katie, to read it. There was a, there's an article, an assessment, actually made by a pro-Israeli uh, military official in the U.S. It's called We Were Caught Unprepared, okay? Which does an actual assessment of IDF's capabilities and their strategies in 2006 war in, in Lebanon, okay? Basically, the assessment is they're used to dealing with militias, okay? And by militias, there's a difference between trained fighters and militias. Militias is like, you see a couple guys on the street, they need to defend that area, you give them some guns. Those are militias. They don't have any formal training. They don't have any structure, like actual military structure. They don't have any discipline. They don't know how, they, have, they don't have any communications uh, apparatuses. They're just guys with guns, okay? They're used to dealing with guys with guns. That's what the Israelis are used to dealing with. And the West Bank, when they go into Jenin, now, obviously, this is advanced. The resistance in the West Bank is advanced. But historically, they just go in. They do what they want. They leave unscathed, or maybe one of them gets shot, you know? Gaza is not like that anymore for them. Gaza has a city underneath the city. They have a tunnel network, okay? They've assassinated two figures of Hamas in this last three days. Of all this bombardment, of the thousands of, of missiles they've launched, two Hamas leaders have been assassinated. Okay, what that tells you is they're not going to be able to decapitate the head of Hamas from the skies. So they have to go into the ground. And when they go into the ground, a society that is very sensitive to the loss of soldier life, is not going to be able to withstand a face-to-face -face combat. Because what's going to happen is, first of all, it's booby-trapped. Hamas initiated this war, not Israel. So they prepared for an invasion. So that means then there's a trap set. And right now, this is why there's a delay. In 2006, you know, they invaded immediately. And they suffered losses immediately. They haven't, it's been three days they haven't invaded. They're like still gathering up troops, which is shocking. And before, this would have never happened. Before, it would have just been bombardment from the skies. But right now, the bombardment is it's diminishing returns. Over time, you can only drop so many rockets and kill so many civilians before you haven't accomplished your political goal or the goal of the war, which is what they've stated, to eliminate Hamas. So they have to go into the ground. That's not going to be a fun battle. That's not going to be a fun fight for them. They're going to lose a lot of soldiers, and it's going to be slow moving. And they're going to, and it's a territory that's not their territory, a territory controlled by the other side that knows the intricacies of the neighborhoods, the underground tunnels, knows where the traps are, and has set up a, a system that would allow them to repel people. So I think it's going to be, a, if they invade, it's going to be long drawn out. And here's the problem for them if they invade, they still have the resistance in Lebanon to contend with. And that's the worst case scenario for them, is the Lebanese resistance to come into this picture. Because the Lebanese resistance's capabilities, its number of soldiers, its rockets, is multitude more advanced than what exists in Gaza. And that's the worst case scenario for, the, for, for Israel. And that's why the U.S. docked a warship outside of Lebanon, in the Mediterranean because they want to try to deter them. But we've seen back and forth with Israel and Lebanon recently in the last few days, and this is just testing the water, right? Like, this is just about... But it's Hezbollah 
telling the Israelis we're here and present. So be careful how you do it. And I don't think the resistance in Lebanon will let Hamas be destroyed. I don't think they will without energy. And they've signaled that they won't let them. So this is this is where we're ending up. The only way out of this, in my opinion, is a negotiation. Now, if the Israeli society is willing after what's happened to do that, it will get it done. But that's my fear that Netanyahu, if he off-ramps to a negotiation, that means his government's done. His coalition is done. And he's in prison. That's what's at risk here. That's what's at stake here. And that's why it's it's really dangerous a moment. And then, you know, the potential for a regional war with Iran and the Iraqi militias and all of this other stuff. I won't even get into that, but that's also a partial, a possible reality for us. Well, Brad, who the producer of the show, wanted to know if he thought if Israel chose to level Gaza, thereby knowingly killing many Israeli citizens with Israeli bombs, whether you think that would happen if it did, what the consequences would be? It's hard to say right now. Like they've signaled that they don't care about the lives of, of the prisoners of war that that the Hamas has. Right, which is crazy because they love to pretend that that's all they care about, right? They never leave anyone behind, even corpses. Right. And so I think that's bluffing. Like I do think that they don't, I don't think Israeli society can forgive a Netanyahu-led government for killing captives, right? Because here's the thing, even with Galad Shalit, you know, like this one prisoner, his family was able to create so much pressure on the Israeli government, right? And this is true of the other, because before this before this war broke out, Hamas has a few prisoners, has three or four of Israeli soldiers. And there was one that wandered into Gaza, uh, I believe uh, uh, an Israeli man, but I don't remember the, the specifics of it. I don't know that they would level Gaza at the expense of these people. So I think there's a diminishing return. They're, they've been telling us they're going to invade any moment now for the last 48 hours. I do expect them to, I actually don't want to say that I expect them to invade. I don't know what to expect right now. I think right now they're just generating consent. And I think, I think the gov- the world, the international community will turn really quickly back on Israel. I, not because I think they care about Palestinians, but they can't have an outbreak of a regional war with Ukraine and Russia. Like the U.S. is kind of stuck right now. And then you have ta- the pivot to Taiwan and China, like all of these things. And this might give you a sense of why Hamas decided to do what it did in this moment, right? If you if you pay attention to what's been happening the last three years with the West Bank, with the South, with the establishment of tents uh, in the Sheba farms by the resistance in Lebanon, right? If you follow these things, these are all in the negotiation uh, around the gas fields in the Mediterranean between Lebanon and Israel, in which Hezbollah threatened the attack, the gas fields, the actual extractors of ga- the explorers and extractors of gas of the coast of Palestine, that all couldn't and wouldn't exist if there wasn't a war in the U- Russia and Ukraine. Why? Because first of all, Israel needs to extract that gas for European consumption, right? There's a pressure around that. The second is right now the U.S. has funneled all of its weapons, all of its money into supplying this war, an, un- an-, an- a non-ending war. So. Right now, there's, they're going to be forced to pick. Do we back an extended long-term war that might become a regional war in the Middle East? Or do we still focus on Russia and, and Ukraine? And wait a minute. We still got Taiwan and China. This multipolarity that exists, that's opening up, is creating more limited choices 
for Western powers. And that includes Israel, because ultimately Israel is an outpost for the West. That's what it is. That's all it is. And here's here's what I tell people. Like, you know, the U.S. always talks in this, like, this is this propaganda of shared values, right? Shared history and the only democracy in the Middle East. I believe genuinely that if Israel didn't serve the United States in the region, if it wasn't an asset, they would not think twice about Israel. And, and that includes Jewish people. Because truthfully, the history of Western uh, civilization's relationship to Jewish people has been of one of, if not apathy, like in, indifference, contempt. That's been its history, right? And so right now, the you, you, you see this because the people who closed their borders on Jewish refugees during the Holocaust was this country, was the West, was the British. These were the people who closed their borders and told them, go to Palestine, right? And so these people, they're, it's uh, opportunistic. It's in the same way that the Ukrainian lives are now being opportunistically expended. And that's what's so sad about this country that talks in terms of, oh, good and evil. This is what the U.S. is about, yada, yada. No, the U.S. is about using all of these oppressed people. Because at the end of the day, these people are oppressed, in service of the, whether it's the Kurds in the region, like the Kurdish people, when they're used by the U.S. to capture oil fields in Syria, right? And then the moment that ISIS is on their door, they kind of say, wait a minute, like, I don't know if we want to expend this sort of energy or the moment that it doesn't become convenient, they drop chip. That's how the U.S. works with these people, these minority groups. So I, and, and, and here's like, just to touch on this last question around like, and this is why I think the path forward for Jewish people uh, around anti-Semitism is Jew the, the struggle against anti-Semitism must be an internationalized struggle, must be a solidarity struggle. It must be a struggle against anti-Muslim, anti-Black, and anti it has to be internationalized, right? The siege mentality that exists that's been generated by Zionism as a politics is about the West because a military outpost requires a siege mentality. And you like, imagine being the president of the United States telling Jewish people in this country, you're not safe. What does that mean here? That's an abdication of your responsibility to protect your citizens within your country. That you need to have a perpetual state somewhere else in the event that what you fail to protect them, Instead, it should be Jewish people should be protected everywhere they are, right? And they, not just Jewish people, every people, everyone should be protected where they, wherever they are. So, I mean, like, I think this is the principles that undergird the Palestinian struggle, but progressive struggle more generally. I'm not saying that Palestinian society is progressive or Palestinian resistance factions are progressive. I'm saying the struggle for Palestine is progressive. In the same way, the struggle against anti-Semitism is progressive and should be progressive in the same way you can spell it out. Well, you know what, to, to speaking of, of the argument you just made about how this is really about Western domination or how Israel is really utilized. It's not about standing with persecuted people or preventing another Holocaust, right? Here's Joe Biden kind of admitting that in, I believe, 1984. I'm we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. 
There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. This is an excellent clip. Yeah. So he, he agrees with you. No, it is. It's because, you know, that's the same reason that the U.S. supports Saudi Arabia. It's the same reason, like, it's the same reason that Taiwan is propped up. It's the same reason the Ukraine is supported. Like, it's all just, it's, it's, they're, they're proxies ultimately for the U.S. And, uh, Here's like, I think Zionism as a project was so, like it arose out of a moment of Western anti-Semitism. Some people try to tra trace Zionism to like uh, the Holocaust, but it obviously predates the Holocaust by 50, 60, 70 years, right? It was in response to anti-Semitism in the West. But in fact, it was a product of three trends, anti-Semitism, colonialism as the method and nationalize, nationalism as the ontology, like the character. We need to create a nation through colonization to respond to anti-Semitism. That, that is the emergence of historical trends that produced the Zionist movement. But historically, Jewish people said there were different currents that answered, right? Right. There was a huge anti-Zionist Jewish tradition. Right, that revolved around internationalism, socialism, communism, our response to fascism is solidarity. Our response to fascism is working class struggle. That's what's the dominant response. Now, many of those people and many of those movements were genocided by the Nazi regime, right? And Zionism basically came to dominate out of the Holocaust. Like it came out of, out of that moment, right? But ultimately, Zionism as a project of colonialism, as a colonial project, rendered concentrated Jewish people in an area that required an ethnic cleansing of another people, which rendered Jewish people perpetually unsafe. That, that, that to me is like the fundamental uh, historical mistake, if you can call it one of, of Zionism. I mean, the irony is it's not good for Jews either. Yeah, it's not good for Jews either. No, it's not. It's not. It's not good for Jews in a number of different ways. The destruction of diaspora communities and diaspora culture of Yiddish, of the cultural life, of the richness and depth of Sephardic Ju Judaism, of Arabic Judaism, of all of these different trends of Ashkenazi Judaism, right? Like the, the, the depth and history of French Jews of British Jews, of Moroccan and Yemeni Jews, of their food, of their culture and custom, and to, through the creation of an artificial country that sought to make a, a new shared language of Hebrew, right? Like resurrecting it from the dead, right? A nationality that is taken from this area and that area, right? That has really historically no depth. The depth that exists within Israeli culture is Jewish culture from wherever they came, right? Morocco, Yemen, Iraq. And, you know, there's a lot of history to go through, honestly. And I, you're letting me stick for a long time. So I hope I'm not taking up a lot of your time. No, no. And you have to come back because this is great. Yeah. We should do a whole yeah. thing of, about this history. It's so fascinating. But any final words? First of all, I think, thank you, Katie, for, I, like I told you, I've been a fan of, of your show. And ever since you were on The Rising and you took that principled stance in support of Palestine and really grateful for you to have done that. 
And, you know, I encourage your followers and your supporters to continue to speak in support of the Palestinian struggle and emphasize and insist on the context that is history of occupation and see Palestine as a litmus, as a litmus test because it's not about us. It's about what it means for everyone else. And like I said, it's a canary in a coal mine. The moment we, the moment the canary dies in a coal mine, the Palestinian case dies, know that everything else is expendable. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.